Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting The Secret Room. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com secret. And thanks also to Buffy. For $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit buffy.co and enter promo code secret. And you can support The Secret Room. Check out The Secret Room Unlocked at patreon.com secretroom. What's your secret? Okay, well, you know how Facebook has those little birthday reminders and you get a notification, it pops up. It's Joe Blow's birthday. You should wish him a happy birthday. Well, sometimes I get these little reminders and it's like I realize I don't even like that person anymore (laughs) and I don't want him on my friends list. And I actually use the Facebook birthday notifications to unfriend people and (laughs) clean up my um, friends list. Um, I'm like, whose birthday is it? Oh, God. No, I don't think so. Unfriend. Oh, my God. No more. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Today, a story about love. Hi, my name is Larry, and there's something in my past that women I date have a right to know but I've kept it a secret for most of them. And how all love stories are not meant to be happily ever after. Yeah, it was joyous, but I felt alone, still. What Larry did may leave you with mixed emotions. When we first started dating, this is where the beginnings of my jealousy started to show itself. And his quandary about whether to reveal what he did may also leave you with mixed emotions. You'd felt you'd join forces with this incredible woman, and maybe she was just a little bit, I don't know, out of your league? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I felt that. You know, I did feel like in many ways she was. Yeah. And when you're done listening to Larry's story, I want you to ask yourself, does he deserve a shot at true love? Ten years ago. Ten years ago, we were divorced. Welcome to The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Okay, I think uh, I think we're ready to get started, Larry. Great. Thanks, Ben. Okay, you bet. Hi, Larry. Welcome to The Secret Room. Hi, Ben. It's great to have you here. It's good to be here. Yeah. Your, uh, your secret just jumped out of email, you know, and just grabbed me and shook me. <laughs> and uh, I, knew, I knew I had to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'd like to just get right into it. Okay. It seems to me that... All aspects, or most aspects of your secret, are born out of your relationship with your ex-wife, or the relationship that you had with your ex-wife. Yeah. Can you take me to the day that you met her? The day I met her, I was at an acting studio. I was just started teaching acting at the studio. I was also directing a play at the time, and I had seen her, and... She was going to be in the class that I was teaching, but I also needed crew on the show. And from the moment I saw her, I I was completely smitten. She was, she was gorgeous. You know, she had this kind of fire about her that was incredibly attractive. So I asked her to work on the show and she agreed and we continued to get closer. And eventually we went out on our first date. Did you sense that the attraction was as immediate for her as it was for you? I think my perspective now, I probably misconstrued it. Really? In what way? In that I was 
wanted to believe that she had a romantic interest immediately as I did. And I suspect now when I look back that it was probably, and I hate to, you know, say what her thoughts were, but I suspect it was probably more, she admired what I did and she admired my work. And that gives you pause today? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Why? Because, I mean, I, I to jump ahead a little bit, one of the things that she said at the end of the relationship was she said that I wore her down. You wore her down when you were courting her? Yeah, I kind of, yeah. So, there was... <laughs> <laughs> you knew what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know... She just kind of gave in to your charms, I guess. And I, Yeah, that's, that's it. what you're my, saying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my sterling charms. I guess what I hear you saying is that is that perhaps she just kind of just gave in to your sort of relentless pursuit and maybe maybe otherwise she might not have gone out with you and you might have avoided this whole tale. Is that what you're saying? I'm not. No, I don't want to blame her. I don't. I don't. I didn't mean it that way. Yeah. I think I was, especially in the beginning, always one step ahead. You know, I was in deeper than she was. The image that I always come back to is John Cusick holding the boombox over his head playing in your eyes. Wow. The iconic scene from the movie Say Anything in the late 80s. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's also, you know, that trope from that era where if the guy just pushes hard enough, the woman's going to fall in love with him. And that's what happened. Yes. Yes. Right. So, you got the prize. And the early years of your relationship, I, I'm guessing, were great, right? They were good. We had... we. We got along so well in so many ways. We had similar tastes in movies and books, and uh, you know we could work together in the theater. There were, which we did often. There was also a little bit of fun in that the relationship was somewhat illicit because she was my student and we were dating. I mean, we we're all adults, of course. And this is all unfolding with the incredible backdrop of of Manhattan, right? That's right. That's right. So you guys were living large and having a great time. Yep. We were we really were. I mean it was it was, you know, we're actors, so we're in the theater, so things were tight, but we made things go and it was it was still an adventure at that point. You were having fun. But then at some point the adventure turned a little bit. There was a crack. Yeah. What happened? We moved in together after about a year or so of dating. You know, that's always going to, to have an impact on the relationship. It's going to always intensify things that you might have seen before. Now, when we first started dating, too, and this is where the beginnings of my jealousy started to show itself. This is the, you know, early aughts before the ubiquity of cell phones. So, there were the pay phones, and sometimes I would call her, and she wouldn't answer. And it's, you know, it's one of those things. Why didn't you answer? Where were you? Were you out with someone? You know. Were you generally a, a jealous and suspicious person before you met her? Yeah, and uh, yeah, because I, you know, that the the feeling was like, you know, if I wasn't there to keep up my John Cusack shtick, she's going to fall in love with somebody else. Yeah, so there was a level of insecurity involved. Absolutely, absolutely. You'd felt you'd joined forces with this incredible woman, and maybe she was. Just a little bit, I don't know, out of your league? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I felt that. You know, I did feel like in many ways she was. I mean, she 
There were times when we would go out and we'd be sitting together. And one of the things that we would love to do would to be just sit at a bar and read together. She would get hit on, you know, and I'd be right there. How'd that make you feel? Oh, it, it made me feel invisible. It made me feel unworthy. It made me feel like I would put myself into the potential suitor's eyes and, and, and think, well, what is he doing with her? You know, why does she won't have him? And, and so when you question her on her whereabouts, when she didn't answer the phone, and perhaps when you brought up the fact that people were hitting on her and it, and it didn't make you feel comfortable, how did she react? She thought I was being ridiculous, you know, that I was overreacting. And in fact, I was. The trust wasn't about her. It was about me because I didn't believe that I was worthy. I felt sometimes that she, she wasn't adamant enough. She wasn't adamant enough when suitors came calling to say, I'm not interested. Yeah. She was dismissive of my fears, I think. That was how I felt. Where, in fact, she probably was, you know, of course not. You know, that guy's an idiot. I, you know, she, yeah. I'm being ridiculous, you know. How could I possibly want to be with that, you know, asshole? So, this is a case of hindsight is twenty twenty. Absolutely. You can see now that, you know, she was in the relationship and, and not interested in others. But at the time, it felt like it might be different. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hard. Did she ever give you any reason at all to, you know, question her, her fidelity, her commitment to you? No, not directly. There was one incident where there was this guy that she was friends with, that she grew up with, went to high school with. He always wanted her and he would be overtly flirty with her. You know, this is another one of those situations where I thought like she wasn't setting the boundary strong enough with him. He once sent her lingerie, like a bustier with thigh-high stockings and, and a garter. And I flipped out. In my memory of it, she was defending him. Like, he's being ridiculous. He just doesn't know. It does seem like a gutsy move on his part. He knew she was in a relationship with you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But he never really accepted it. How did you happen to find the lingerie? She showed it to me. She told me it when it came. It wasn't like she was hiding it somewhere. That is an odd chapter to this story. I don't know how to reconcile that. She knew the guy. This is a guy that she grew up with. And he had always hit on her. And she'd be like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. And this was just another one of his over-the-top gestures. And she was, she was not taking it seriously at all. Right. So it sounds to me like maybe she enjoyed the attention, but that was as far as it was going to go. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like she was ever going to wear the stuff. How did you react to Natalie's defending her friend? <laughs> Not well. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I was already upset by the fact that this guy sent this and the fact that my presence in her life was not being taken seriously. But then to have her defending him as opposed to taking my side flipped me out even further. But with bipolar disorder, the type that I have, bipolar 2, one of the hallmarks of the illness as it manifests itself in me is a blind red rage. I literally see red 
often my experience of that was almost as if I was sitting in my head, looking out of my eyes and unable to control anything that else that was happening. Sounds unbearable. And we also have to keep in mind that I'm not necessarily a tall man, but I was substantially larger than Natalie. So did you see red, as you put it, when she defended her friend? I did. And I got into my rage. Tell me about that rage on that day. Susie Lark. Hey, Ben. It's so cold here in Washington, D.C. This morning, seriously, the feels like temperature was 19 degrees. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I was also just freezing. It was a whopping 62 degrees here in sunny California. Oh my gosh, that is so not fair. But I got to tell you, cold mornings are so comfortable in my bed. I was really feeling it today. I was wrapped up all snugly in my buffy breeze. We are in love. Must have made it hard to get out of bed and right into that cold. It, It was tough to get up, honestly. It's the best comforter I've ever had. It keeps me just the perfect temperature and I never overheat. It is comfortable, more comfortable than cotton even. I like my Buffy because it's hypoallergenic. It's got a high thread count and it shuts out the dust, the mold, and the mites. It's also planet-friendly. Yeah, it is. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's 100% plant-based. That makes it breathable and comfortable in a way that polyester and down cannot even compete with. True words. Everyone should get one, like me. I have two. It's no risk. Try it on your bed, and if you don't like it, you can return it for free. Give us the deal for our listeners, Ben. Of course. Secret Room listeners, for $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Buffy.co and enter promo code SECRET. That's Buffy.co, promo code SECRET, for $20 off. Natalie's defense of her friend didn't sit well with Larry, but despite his rage, their relationship progresses to a place you might not expect. When I'm in the rage, I stop hearing, or I'm very selective in my hearing. All I was hearing was that she was defending him, and I couldn't believe that she wasn't immediately calling him and saying, you were so far out of line. And I'm yelling this at her at the top of my voice. And I was using my size and presence to intimidate her. And I was certainly using my voice. Was she scared? I'm sure she was. And and just to be clear, was, was there any physical abuse? No. But that doesn't mean that there isn't the threat of it. You know, that's part of the psychological and emotional abuse is there's the undercurrent, there's the threat. Yeah. And and where did this take place? This was in our, uh, when we lived together in Manhattan. I see. And so you're in a apartment and anybody hear what was going on? No, no. Oh. Was this the first time she'd seen your rage? No, it wasn't the first time. Probably it was one of the first times that she saw it at full bore. Was this new to you also, or had you experienced this, you know, this type of anger before? I had experienced it before. I I wasn't diagnosed until later. So I'd been living with this for the bulk of my life. 
So it sounds like that was an inflection point in your in your relationship with Natalie. Yes. Did things change after that? She noticed it. You know, we would have other incidents, not necessarily on that level, but you know, I used my rage and anger to control her. In what ways? Essentially, to avoid the rage and anger, she wouldn't poke the bear. I see. Right. She would do what she felt was necessary to keep things even. That's right. That's right. And in doing so, she probably acquiesced to you on a number of points that she might not otherwise have. Yes, absolutely. So how did your relationship progress after that? There were times when it was good. And when it was good, it was very good. We still loved a lot of the same things. We were, you know, nerdy fan kids around like fantasy stuff. And we read a lot of the similar things. But my fears and anxieties would intrude fairly often. Taking a cab home from somewhere and the cab driver sets me off or in a bar and some guy hits on Natalie or some perceived slight anywhere. You know, I had her walking on pins and needles. Yeah. I sense, of course, that you're very introspective about uh, your behavior at, at this point in time. Rewinding back then, did you have any sense that, gosh, I'm not, you know, behaving appropriately here? Or were you just so just tied up in this that you had no self-awareness? There was certainly a large amount of, of <laughs> fooling myself. Here's, here's the dichotomy is that I really still felt like I was a good guy. <laughs> you know, all of my politics were right, you know, and I believed that I was feminist. <laughs> and then when we'd have something like this, when I would have a rage, I would always feel terrible and apologize afterwards. And, and I would blame her for setting me off. And how did she take that? Would she fight you on it or just say, yeah, Larry? It, it got to that point where she would you know, apologize for sending me off. So you guys are living together in Manhattan and you're having good times mixed in with the bad times. But then, and I know this from our previous discussions, but then you lost your job. Yeah, there was a fair bit of time actually in all of that where I was working sporadically and then not a lot at all. And, you know, I went into a circle of self-loathing not being able to provide, or even my own fair share. The thing about the depressive side of the mental illness is, at least for me, is I tend to fall into a shame spiral, which paralyzes me. So, you know, I, I'm out of work, but I am so ashamed of being out of work that I have trouble looking for work because my feelings of self-worth are so bad. And it just keeps going down until I just, I don't know what to do. I am literally paralyzed. On the flip side, if Natalie brought it up, I would lose my shit. You know, of course I know that I'm not working. Yes, of course, I know that I'm not finding a job or I would lie about looking for a job just to cover my paralysis and the defensiveness over my lack of ability to find a job or to contribute would feed into the rage and the rage would come out again. 
And all the while, she's sticking with you. Yeah. Did you ever wonder why? <laughs> like, did you expect her to just break and, and cut loose? Constantly. <laughs> Constantly. Did you ask her? <laughs> I never, I never <laughs> asked her, but I was constantly afraid. That's the insecurities right there. You know, I was always afraid that she was going to go away. Were there days during this period when you didn't talk? Yeah. Yeah. Or just minimally. And so, how long did this period last? A long time. Well over a year, I would say. And you were out of work that whole time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very hard. So, ultimately, you found a job. Yes, I did. Did that fix things? To a degree, I was feeling better, but I wasn't making a whole lot, you know? But I was contributing. Must have been a relief for Natalie. Yes. And not just about the money, but also just about, you know, an improvement in your mood. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was out of the house a lot. <laughs> right. You weren't there brooding. Right. And, you know, meanwhile, she is building up her life, too. She started working for a company doing the lowliest of the lowly and has been steadily working her way up into management of this company. Tremendous. Yeah, she's she's doing amazingly well, and I'm stagnating until I get this job. Things were good for a while. I mean, we would have our off nights because I was working in a bar. Okay. I was tending bar. You know, she would come down to the bar, pick me up when I was done with work, and we would sometimes hang out with folks there because we knew a lot of the people, and some of those same old triggers would happen there because it's a bar. Did you have any problem with alcohol? I would say no. I don't, you know, I... That sounds like a qualified no. Well, <laughs> I am a bartender. Right, okay. It's, it's never impeded my life in any way, is what I would say. Okay. You know, I get up for work every day. I'm never late for work, that sort of thing. And I meet my appointments and, you know, it is a, it is a definite presence in my life. And if it would cause problems, yeah, I mean, it did cause problems on occasion. If we both had been drinking too much and then decide to have an argument under those circumstances, which is never a good scene. So the alcohol may have played a role in fueling the rage. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least being able to quell it. At this point, how long have you and Natalie been together? We were probably about seven years into our relationship at this point. Okay. Well, you know, that's a while. That it is. Is it time to that it is. step up your game? There were, there were still cracks appearing during this period. I, I perceived it in terms of her job, basically, that she was becoming more successful and would leave me behind. I have this theory that where back in the old days, a married couple would have a baby to save a relationship. These days, people get married to save a relationship. And I take it that's just what you did. I did. I proposed. She accepted. And we got married. So those must have been very joyous times. They were good. They were good. I mean, we <laughs> it was a relatively painless putting together of the wedding. Were there any stipulations on getting married? Yeah. What were they? I had to go to therapy. How'd you feel about that? I would yes her to death and go to therapy. So you did go? I did, but I didn't take it seriously. So in your in your heart of hearts, were you like, uh, okay, but I really don't get why you think I need this? Yeah, absolutely. Ben, that's how my brain was working, is I didn't see myself as having a problem. Because this is how I've been my whole life. And if that's what I need to do, then I'll go. Because you wanted to make it work. Yeah, yeah. You wanted the marriage. 
I wanted her. Yeah. This was the next step. Yep. You'd been together seven years. It's time to get married. Let's do it. Absolutely. So how was marriage those early years? In the very beginning, it was lovely, but it eventually just brought out into relief the problems that were already there. You know, the fighting didn't stop. In fact, if anything, if I felt threatened in any way, it almost got worse because now you had the label of marriage on top of it. But in reality, this woman has agreed to marry you and that should have mitigated all of your fears because she said, yeah, I'm with you. I'm going to marry you for the rest of my life. It's not how my brain was working then. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be the ultimate commitment, right? Well. But you didn't see it that way. No, no, because I didn't even trust that. Natalie was my second wife. My parents were divorced. Divorce was everywhere. So it was a symbol, but it wasn't an unbreakable one. That's right. And I'd already been through divorce once, and that was horrible, so. So you didn't want to go through that again? No. But what happened? What happened was Natalie finally had enough, and she left me. Goodness. What was the catalyst? We were out at one of our spots and reading, and uh, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but I suspect it was the old story of some guy hitting on her while ignoring me, and my thinking that she didn't react correctly or strongly enough, and then getting into a rage, and I was screaming at her, cursing at her, and saying just awful things to her on the street in the East Village. Oh my goodness. You were creating a scene. Absolutely. You know, I eventually collected myself enough that we could get into a cab and go home and I may be conflating events, but I, I think that I probably raised the cab driver too on the, the way home because he probably, you know, just caught in the crossfire and then raged some more when we got home until I finally just passed out and went to sleep. I take it, the next morning she was gone. It's not too late for a good New Year's resolution, and why not make it about self-care? BetterHelp Online Counseling is the perfect way to improve your self-care right now. When you sign up, BetterHelp will match you to one of about 4,000 licensed therapists. BetterHelp counselors give feedback, advice, and guidance. They offer expertise in just about any area that you might need, like sleeping, trauma, anger, and grief. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. BetterHelp is available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. You can schedule a secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Basically, they're there when you need them and how you need them, in the comfort of your own private space. And you can even extend your counseling beyond yourself. When you sign up, the very first choice you'll make is who it's for. They offer individual counseling, that's for yourself, and also couples counseling and teenage counseling for your kid. Financial aid is available for those who qualify, and there's no penalty if you just don't click with your counselor and you want to switch to another. It's easy. And BetterHelp is a great option these days when the world is moving so fast all around us. You don't have to drive to an office, park, and wait. It's all online, which can reduce a lot of stress in itself. Secret Room listeners, Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com secret. Fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor. Start communicating in under 24 hours. That's BetterHelp.com secret 
for 10% off your first month. The morning after an evening of combating Natalie, Larry wakes up. She was gone. How did you feel? Devastated. I had to read the note that she left. I don't even remember what was in it, but I had to read the note a couple times just to be sure, and I was completely and utterly devastated. Must have felt so alone. Absolutely alone. That you'd ruined everything. And it confirmed what an awful person I was. Did it validate your fears? That, yeah, she's going to leave me? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was right. Absolutely, because I forced the situation. You made it happen. Yep. I did make it happen. Did you call her? Yeah, yeah, I did. Were you able to reach her? We started going to couples therapy together, and I started to take my therapy seriously. I got myself to a psychiatrist, and that's when I was diagnosed. And I was like, I was going to do everything I possibly could to keep her. Right. And I, I ghost walked through my life. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I would hold it together for work, and that was about it. It seems like that there was some hope she was willing to come back to you if you met certain conditions. There was some hope. Well, we were going to couples therapy, which gave me hope. You said you would do whatever it took. What was it that you needed to do to get her back into your life? Was taking care of the head, taking my therapy seriously now and getting that diagnosis. Even though I started doing it just for her, it eventually actually did help me. You know, once I was diagnosed and started taking the meds, the therapy took on a whole new meaning for me. My head wasn't clouded, so I could actually take part in my talk therapy. So, Larry, was it incredibly freeing to have the diagnosis? Oh, my God, Ben, it was the best day of my life. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really was one of the best days of my life. I, I would imagine. It's like you've, you've got this rage you can't control, and now here is a medical explanation. And that's no fun to have, but at least it gives you some context. I have a name to put on this. I have a way to fight this, you know? <laughs> and so you told Natalie. And how was it for her hearing that news? She was happy to hear that I had the diagnosis and that I was taking the meds, but the damage was already done by that point. Did the meds help? They did. Are you on them today? I am. I take them every day. I haven't had a rage since we split up. Wow. From the words you're choosing, I have a sense of what happened, but I'd like to just ask you directly. When you got on the meds and that stabilized your mood, did that repair the relationship? Were you able to reconcile? No. Why not? One of the things that happened was with this clarity, I could see the devastation that I'd left in my wake. That must have been a terrible realization. It was. I could see and, and begin to really own the horrible things that I had done. But it wasn't, that wasn't enough. No. Natalie must have seen the improvements in your mood and in your demeanor and your behavior toward her. And she was going through couples counseling with you, ostensibly with an end to reconcile. Why, why didn't it work out? Well, <laughs> couples therapy can be used to help couples reconcile, but it can also be used to help couples part. Right. It can provide a justification for 
we weren't meant to be. Yeah. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word justification, but it can help couples to understand why they shouldn't be. Did she feel empowered in the therapy? She did. And because I was in the healing process and devastated to really begin the process of owning who I was and what I did, I was cowed and I took it because I deserved to hear the anger from her and the vitriol from her that she had been storing for all of those years. It's time for you to take some rage. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What did she say? I can't remember exactly what the things that she said, because, I mean, a lot of that is still a bit of a blur. It's more like emotions and, and feelings and anything else. But the one thing she did say was she yelled at me with such anger. You screwed the pooch. What a devastating summary. I mean, in those four words, she's telling you, I gave you everything and you effed it up. Yeah, that's right. That must have knocked you down a couple of pegs. It's like getting punched in the bread basket by Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can hear in your voice, you can still feel that punch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's never gone away. You're still married at this point, right? But it didn't, I guess it didn't last. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Funnily enough, <laughs> after our last couples therapy session, where we agreed that we were going to get a divorce, that was also a very freeing situation, too. For both of us, there was no possibility. There was no question. We knew what was happening. You were ready to let go of this woman that you'd been, you know, at times pursuing and at times pushing away. Ready? I don't know. But I was accepting the fact that I had to. And she was ready to get off the train. No question about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We literally left the therapist's office and went to a, a document processing service and started the process of getting a divorce. We had nothing to split up. We just, you know, nothing of any sort of value. So it was literally just getting the decree from the court. Because we felt so free, we were giggling the entire time. <laughs> the, the person who helped us must have thought we were insane. <laughs> I'm so glad that after this tumultuous relationship filled with so much anger and vitriol that you were able to have an amicable divorce. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a little rocky. The, the, the worst part of it was dividing up the books and the movies. <laughs> and was there a moment where, where you said goodbye? Or did she come in under cover of night and take the stuff and you never really had that, that moment? Um, the moment we really said goodbye was after we finished that first time with the document processing people. We stood on the, the sidewalk outside 
and uh, and we hugged and we said goodbye and we cried. Right. Must be terribly sad to say goodbye to somebody that you've shared so much emotion with. It was. Are you in touch today? No. How long ago was it when you said goodbye? It was about 10 years ago now. About 10 years. So it's been a while. Time heals. But clearly this is still a period of your time that has tremendous impact on you today. Yeah. And so... In the time since your divorce, have you had long-term relationships? I have had relationships that have lasted for months. You know, it was probably maybe eight or nine months was probably the longest. Your secret is essentially that you struggle with sharing this whole story with women that you, you form relationships with, you know, and, and you struggle with when to reveal this or whether to reveal this. Do you feel they have a right to know? I do feel they have a right to know because about a year and a half ago, I had a relapse. The med stopped working. I went into a downward spiral. If I am in a long-term relationship, whoever I, I'm with has to know that that's a possibility. How do you handle that? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I am still trying to figure that out. Yeah. I know that since your divorce, you have had some opportunity to talk about your story publicly. What's the, what's the reaction been from people? Those people who know me, my friends, my family, they have compassion for me and they see it. You know, they, they see that I am not who I was when I've, talked about the story in more public setting, the response has been decidedly mixed, erring on the side of negative. Are there any negative comments that have really stuck out with you that have just stung and you carry? I think the one that really sticks with me is when I've seen comments to the effect of that I can never change. But you know, I think and believe that I can change and uh, that I have changed. But if there's a perception that I can't, then what do I do? Well, I think you just prove them wrong through your actions. That's absolutely what I try to do. But, you know, we're living in a world where there's still a deep stigma around mental illness. That is true. Have you treated women inappropriately since your divorce? No. In the beginning, you know, my entire life, I had to relearn how to behave, to trust my emotions, to figure out what is a genuine emotion and what is something that's being fueled by the mental illness. Um, you know, is it appropriate to be angry here? Is it appropriate to have this level of anger? And for the most part, I trust it, but there's still always the thought in the back of my head. Before we turned on the mics for the interview, you mentioned that... This whole story is impacting a confluence of events right now in your life. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? You know, this is not an easy place for me to revisit. I think it's an important one. I think it's an important story to tell, to give hope to other people out there like me, that it is possible to change, to heal yourself and then live a happier life. I recently met this wonderful woman. And if there was a checklist, man, she hit them all. My age, gorgeous, 
super intelligent, big old nerd. And uh, things seemed to be going very well. And we had a few dates. And then she texted me to let me know she saw some red flags. Uh-oh. And didn't want to date anymore. Oh, my gosh. What were the red flags? She never specified. And so it's over. Yeah. I think I understand, of course, why you wouldn't want to share, you know, the, the knowledge of your bipolar disorder or the events that took place during your marriage. But in your own words, why, why don't you want to share? That sort of goes to my, you know, this internalized feeling of wearing a scarlet letter thing is, is I know that eventually I have to. It just, it's so scary to share that. And it's, it's afraid that the way that a woman will look at me will forever be tarnished with that image of the monster that I once was. Really got your work cut out for you, don't you, Larry? <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? You just have to prove yourself. And I try every day. Find somebody patient who will let you and allow you that space. And I do try for me to be a better person. Do you feel confident that you can enter a new relationship and potentially one that leads to marriage and, and not put out those red flags and, and not, not get yourself into the same kind of trouble that you did before? I do. I genuinely do. What safeguards do you have in place? Well, I know the disease better now. I know the illness better. I know the tells better. I mean, just as an example, my relationship with my mother, we had a tense relationship for most of my life, but I found this one book about bipolar disorder and she sees me in a completely different light now and she understands me so much better and our relationship is the best it has ever been. I am not making excuses ever. I take responsibility in my relationship with Natalie. I take responsibility. And that's stuff that I am going to have to bear for the rest of my life. Is that part of the reason why you came to the secret room today? Yeah. This, for me, is part of trying to redeem myself. Is to get the story out here and through all the pain and the discomfort of revisiting this place. To let other people know that this path exists because I didn't know. When I was diagnosed, Ben, I had no idea. I felt, yeah, it was joyous, but I felt alone still. Well, Larry, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story here. I wish you a lot of luck finding love and living a great life. Thank you so much, Ben. That means the world. You're welcome. Larry has taken responsibility for his actions and his condition, but it remains an inner struggle, one he deals with day to day. When the rage subsides, the guilt shall rise. Does he deserve a shot at true love? Susie Lark. Join me on The Secret Room Unlocked. Larry talks more about his mental illness and also about when he told the story on Risk, a great storytelling podcast. Hear how he wound up on the show and about the surprising reaction he received. Susie Lark hosts The Secret Room Unlocked, where we expand each episode and drop other fun stuff. It's in Thanks When You Support and is available exclusively at patreon.com slash secret room. In pictures, see Larry at his wedding and at the bar he worked at. They're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
just search at Secret Room Pod. And I must welcome the stampede of new listeners to our little corner of the podverse. Thanks first to Christopher Johnson for his glorious review on the BBC, where he said The Secret Room has some of the most gripping stuff he's ever heard on a podcast. And many of you saw BuzzFeed's just-released list of podcast recommendations. They listed us third. We're shooting for number one, BuzzFeed. But thank you. Links are in the show notes and on our webpage under the Media tab if you want to check these mentions out. Do you have a ridiculous secret to share? Do not waste a minute. Send it to me now at secretroompod.com. There's a link you should click there. Your favorite indie podcast that could would not be possible without the dedicated and awesome support of Susie Lark, Sashel Brooks, Alessandro Nigro, and the entire Street Secret team. Phil Palazzolo recorded the interview, and our music and theme are by Breakmaster Cylinder. Listen on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, and recommend this show to everyone you know. Thanks. Are you ready? Yep. This is The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Pot on, Ben. Pot on, Larry. Larry.